This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at area code 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3. T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. The following articles are excerpted from the Psalms in Worship, a volume which contains numerous articles and papers written on the subject indicated by the book's title, and copyrighted 1907. Read by Samantha Elosais. A special, a special exegesis of Colossians 3, verse 16 and Ephesians 5, verse 19 by Professor John McNaher, Doctor of Divinity, Allegheny, Pennsylvania. As even a glance at their contents shows, the epistle to the Ephesians and that to the Colossians are closely alike. About half of the verses in the former have parallels in the latter, and there are other resemblances as well. This twinship is explained when it is remembered that the two letters were written at the same time and two communities similarly circumstanced. Among the coincidences in thought and language are to be numbered the texts under study which almost repeat each other. Turning to these duplicate exhortations, it appears at once that they are of of peculiar interest in that they yield a glimpse of the simple worship of primitive days. Their value in this direction is heightened by the fact that one of them is addressed to a plurality of churches, it being now accepted broadly that Ephesians was sent as a circular to Christians in the province of Asia. True, the question has been raised whether they have to do with worship at all, whether Paul is not merely touching upon the intercourse of believers in their family life, at their love feasts, their social gatherings, and other meetings, and suggesting mutual edification by song. On this mooted point, the common verdict is that the main, though not exclusive, reference is to the stated services of the public assembly, which seem to have been a free, of a free and elastic nature. That worship, as well as joined instruction, is in mind, is indicated by the concluding words in each citation, singing with grace in your hearts unto God, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. With the foregoing inquiry answered, it may be added as beyond doubt that all the resources of the early church, as regards her treasury of sacred song, are embraced in the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs here mentioned. In the three terms, the the inventory is evidently complete. Here, then, are classical pages, which must be consulted in connection with any investigation into the hymnology of the apostolic period. Passages which have a decisive bearing, therefore, on what compositions may be employed properly in the ordinance of praise. As to their meaning, there has been pronounced disagreement. The advocates of uninspired songs in worship look on them as strongholds, arguing therefrom that in the age of the apostles the Psalter was supplemented by new lyrics, and and that therefore, as a necessary consequence, the legitimacy of the modern hymn is established. Some writers on this side declare themselves in a very dogmatic way, dismissing lightly the idea of contradiction. On the other hand, it is alleged that there is no cause for supposing that Paul's hymns and spiritual songs were anything different from the canonical psalms, and that there is no license here for the use of other devotional pieces than the psalms in the worship of God. The latter is the view which will be upheld in this exegesis, It challenges the opposite interpretation as being but a surmise, 
and offers a series of substantial reasons for its own correctness. To begin with, it should be realized that present usage as regards the debated terms plays no part in fixing their sense. One can be misled by the seemingly familiar phraseology and think forthwith of the hard and fast distinction now made between psalms and hymns. But we are deciphering what was penned in A.D. 61 or 62, long centuries before any of the uninspired productions in the hymnals of today were extant. In order, therefore, to make these lines intelligible, we must transport ourselves back into that past to which Paul and his readers belong, and there undertake our exposition with open-mindedness and cautious discrimination. As an approach toward identifying the poems intended by these designations, there is clear evidence at hand that all of them were divinely inspired, indicted under the extraordinary influence of the Holy Spirit. Preliminary to what is deemed decisive proof, certain considerations which go to make this important claim a strong probability may be adduced. Number one, first, in these verses, the direction given is not to prepare or provide songs of praise, but only to sing them. On this we must be permitted to insist. But in the absence of an express warrant for so doing, would not these Asia Minor Christians have been chary about writing original hymns for rendition in worship, when the Psalter written on the mountain tops of inspiration and full of the things of God was everywhere, as is allowed a congregational handbook? Is it likely that any self-allowed, that any self-advised and unaided would have had the temerity or the desire to attempt such an innovation? Second, furthermore, had any of Gentile extraction exercised this liberty, would it have not excited strong protest among their Jewish brethren? The first converts to Christianity were generally Jews. These formed the beginnings of the churches in the towns and cities of the Roman Empire, and for a time they must have had prestige and privileged position. They brought with them from the synagogue the highly cherished psalms, those psalms which were associated with their holiest traditions, and which were known to have been meet for the Master's use, and therefore doubly consecrated. Clinging to these with an inherited reverence, they must have resented vigorously an uninspired Gentile hymnody. The fact, therefore, that on the subject of praise there is not the slightest echo of discord or controversy in the apostolic church indicates that there was no intrusion of of any alien element. Thirdly, Again, it is altogether improbable improbable that hymnists, as measured even by human standards, could be found in the churches of this date. The Gentile members, within whose circle the search is confined, had been but recently rescued from the ignorance and pollution of heathenism, and they had immature, often faulty understanding of religious doctrine. Their literary capabilities, too, must have been limited, For not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, were called. Indeed, the low social status of the early Christians was the standing reproach of hostile critics. All this being true, where are we to find the mellow piety, the spiritual discernment, the education, and the poetic genius in art, which must be taken for granted if uninspired songs fit to be named alongside of the psalms are here in mind? Men who deny the genuineness of Ephesians and Colossians allege that the reference is to just such songs and then proceed to conclude that for this very reason, among others, these epistles betray themselves as later than the apostolic era. Fourthly, moreover, if the psalms of scripture are intended by the word psalms, as is assumed for the present, it is quite unthinkable that Paul would link human compositions with those of the Spirit of God and direct that they be used for the same end. It is true that in most hymnals, the inspired and the uninspired are intermixed, regardless of the chasm in thought and tone which separates them. Occasionally, owing to more conservatism and a finer appreciation of the proprieties, this confusion is modified to the extent that the psalms are kept together and assigned the first pages. But all of this is neither here nor there. We are interpreting Paul, and he had exact conceptions of inspiration. 
It was he who distinguished the Old Testament writings, inclusive of the Psalter, as God-breathed literature, clothed with inviolable sanctity. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 It was he who described himself an apostle of the New Covenant, as receiving truth by divine revelation, and as, the, and as giving it utterance, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the scripture teacheth. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13 It seems incredible, therefore, that in this instance he should trample upon a distinction which elsewhere he guards jealously, and puts uninspired songs in competition with those inspired as having equal teaching worth. What has been noticed thus far affords cogent grounds for the belief that the hymns and spiritual songs of our passages were all of inspired quality. The crowning demonstration of this, however, lies, lies in the descriptive term spiritual. It matters nothing in the argument whether this adjective is taken as limiting each of the preceding words or not. There are those who think that it extends to the psalms and hymns an opinion which is not out of harmony with Greek syntax. Footnote So Hoffman, Soden, Kopp, Rosenmuller, Walter Lowry, and James Dick, Belfast, T.K. Abbott, in the International Critical Commentary, leaves the question open. Under this view, the position of the adjective is looked upon as determining its form. While qualifying each substantive, it takes the nearest gender. End of footnote. But, of course, there is no rule demanding this, and on the other hand, as will appear later, there is sufficient reason for restricting spiritual to songs alone. At the same time, it reflects character on all the compositions of praise here specified. The three words may be synonyms, as we prefer to think, or it may be said with Meyer that the spiritual songs are the genus, of which the psalms and hymns are the species, or spiritual songs may denote the lowest class of a triple category. In any event, when the phrase spiritual is defined, it is certain that the psalms and hymns, no less than the songs, are duly characterized. Now, what is the import of the word? In answer to this pivotal question, we affirm that the Greek original, which is Greek word, has no such latitude as meaning of meaning as spiritual has in English, and that it designates commonly whatever is immediately given or produced by the Spirit of God. It is construed thus by an overwhelming majority of critical authorities, including those of the greatest weight. A few special citations will not be amiss. Dr. Warfield of Princeton writes thus in the Presbyterian Review, July uh, the July edition of 1880. Quote, of the 25 instances in which the word occurs in the New Testament, in no single case does it sink even as low in its reference as the human spirit. And in 24 of them of, is derived from, Greek word, the Holy Ghost. In this sense of belonging to or determined by the Holy Ghost, the New Testament usage is uniform, with the one single exception of Ephesians 6, verse 12, where it seems to refer to the higher, though fallen, superhuman intelligences. The appropriate translation for it in each case is spirit-given, or spirit-led, or spirit-determined. End of quote. In the Expositor, 3rd Series, 4th Volume, page 137, Dr. Warfield repeats himself substantially and adds that this interpretation, quote, is gradually becoming recognized by the best expositors, end of quote. Dr. Laidlaw of the United Free Church College, Edinburgh, treating the term in Hastings' Dis Dictionary of the Bible, says that, quote, everything, Greek word, spiritual, is a divine product or, cre or creation, end of quote. E.D. in his commentary on Ephesians, that is Ephesians 1 verse 3, remarks that Greek word means, quote, produced by or belonging to the Holy Spirit, end of quote, and adds that this is, quote, the ruling sense of the epithet in the New Testament, 
End of quote. Dr. Charles Hodge, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, that is, 1 Corinthians 10, verse, verse 3, says, quote, One of the most common meanings of the word spiritual in Scripture is derived from the Spirit. Spiritual gifts and spiritual blessings are gifts and blessings of which the Spirit is the author. End of quote. The same position is maintained by such New Testament lex- lexicographers as Creamer, Parkhurst, Robinson, and Thayer, and is advocated in McClintock and Strong's Encyclopedia. Among others who comment on the word, Greek word, as it is found elsewhere in the New Testament, and advance the meanings given, are Barnes, Chalmers, Denny, Farrar, Fosset, Fraunmuller, in Lang Commentary, Gifford, Godet, Gore, Hort, Kling, also the Lang Commentary, Maule, Nader, Olhausen, Sande, Schmeidel, Stanley, Moses Stewart, and Marvin R. Vincent. Coming to authorities on the passages under review, many of the more eminent and scholarly sustain the same exegesis and account these spiritual songs as inspired, the productions of the Holy Ghost in the Department of Poetry. See the New Testament lexicons by Kramer, by Robinson, and by Thayer. From commentators on Colossians or Ephesians, we cite Alford, Beat, Braun, the Lang Commentary, Sheen, Cohn, Dale, Edie, Ellicott, Finlay, McLaren, Mayer, Riddle, Salmond, and Tholuck. Hodge and Barnes are not included in this last list, and their adverse interpretation furnishes an instructive warning of how expositors may be swayed by personal inclination and practice. Dealing with the term in Ephesians 5, verse 19, Hodge writes thus, quote, This may mean either inspired, that is, derived from the Spirit, or expressing spiritual thoughts and feelings. This latter is the more probable. End of quote. And yet in every instance except this one, in which, Greek word, occurs in the New Testament books on which he has commented, Hodge holds stoutly to the other idea of the word, and even here he is, extra- he is constrained to admit it as applicable. Barnes is guilty of the same fault. The sum of our finding thus far is, first, that there is a body of strong presumptive evidence for the inspiration of Paul's psalms and, hy- psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and, second, that the adjective, Greek word, lifts them to this high level beyond peradventure, stamping them as written by poetically gifted men under the extraordinary impulse and guidance of the Holy Spirit. In keeping with such a conclusion is the following from from an editorial in the North British Review of Edinburgh. Quote, It is probable that while the miraculous influences of the Spirit continued upon earth, no uninspired songs were admitted into the public or private devotions of the Christians. End of quote. Quoted from volume 27, page 195. Even if we went no farther, it would appear, and we so assert, that in Ephesians 5, verse 19, and Colossians 3, verse 16, there is not a scintilla of warrant for the use of humanly composed lyrics in worship. Though other inspired odes than those in the book of Psalms should be countenanced in these passages, it were a bewildering feat of inference that would legalize therefrom the multitudinous hymnology of today, for this has been wrought out at the discretion and according to the wisdom of fallible men. Authorization for such an inspired hymnology is imperatively required, but they labor in vain who seek it here. To overcome this objection, there are some by our hymn-singing brethren who claim that a a hymn penned by a good man and embodying evangelical sentiment may be rated as inspired. Thus, Dr. R. R. McSheen Edgar of Dublin wrote recently, quote, His, that is, the Holy Spirit's, inspiration were, inspirations were not exhausted when the canon was complete. And if, he, and if he inspires prayers which have never been embodied in any prayer book, 
canonical or otherwise, is it not reasonable to believe that he has likewise inspired the poets who have devoted themselves to sacred song, although their spiritual songs never could be placed in the canon? End of quote. Taken from the Progressive Presbyterianism, page 144. Such a contention leads to the most perilous consequences, hiding a lurking, though an unconscious, infidelity. It strikes at the scriptural doctrine of inspiration, confusing it with spiritual illumination, just as was done by Schiermacher and his school. Inconsistent as it was, as it is with the faith of the Church Universal, which has always made a marked distinction between the writings of men, of inspired men, and those of ordinary believers, it merits nothing but censure. Estimating these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as all inspired, several conjectures remain open. The first is that Paul, having in mind the strange exaltation which pervaded the apostolic church, alludes to new miraculous songs improvised on the spur of the moment by those in a condition of inspired ecstasy. That is, he alludes to a rhythmic form of the gift of tongues. This theory has no foundation because, first, a store of existing lyrics is presupposed in the language of these passages. Evidently, Paul enjoins his readers to sing what was then accessible and does not intimate unknown, non-existent odes yet to be extemporized. Moreover, the psalms referred to were in existence and the drunken songs of heathen feasts, which stand in antithesis is one in, in one of the contexts, Ephesians 5 verse 18, were ready-made. Why not these hymns and spiritual songs also? Second, there is no proof that lyrical endowments were among the grace gifts, the charismatic activities of the Pauline churches. Third, Paul said of the gift of tongues that it did not edify the church except under certain limitations. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1 through 33. And therefore, so far as instruction was concerned, he must have depreciated kindred outbursts of feeling voiced in song. Here, however, he urges what is of prime value for teaching and admonition. Colossians 3, verse 16. Since ecstatic impromptus are not to be thought of, let us turn to another theory, that is, that inspired songs original to the age and prepared for general use by the apostles or other supernaturally gifted men are referred to. This also is baseless and untenable. First, there is no recorded divine commission in the New Testament constituting hymnists, nor is there any promised help of the Holy Spirit in a lyrical direction. Second, among the diversities of gifts bestowed in rich measure at the outset of the present dispensation, there is no mention of that of sacred poesy. And yet, in Old Testament times, hymn-making was just such a gift. Thirdly, there is unbroken silence in the New Testament regarding the actual making of such odes. The formation of an inspired hymnology was a most important occurrence in the former economy so that it, so that it is signalized in the Old Testament. We might reasonably expect, therefore, that there would have been some hint at least of similar phenomenon in the apostolic church, and the more because the long-standing ordinance of psalmody would have been altered thereby. Fourth, not one such hymn, nor yet a single authentic vestige of one, has been preserved. There are no canticles in the third gospel, though hasty writers speak of the hymns of the Nativity. The songs of the Apocalypse are not quotations from a hymn book, but integral parts of the Apocalypse itself. They belong to the visions which John saw when he was swept away into the heavens. The assertion that there are hymnic fragments scattered over the New Testaments rests on sheer conjecture, a little euphonious Greek being all that can be cited. Footnote Dean Housen, commenting on the conjecture that a certain passage in Roman is, Romans is a lyric quotation, says, quote, The fact that the passage can be broken up into a system of irregular lines consisting of a docmiac and choriambic feet proves nothing because there is scarcely any passage in Greek prose 
which might not be resolved into lyrical poetry by a similar method. Just as, in English, the columns of a newspaper may be read off as hexameters, spondaic, or otherwise, quite as good as most of the so-called English hexameters which are published. End of quote. Quoted from Life and Epistles of St. Ball by Coney Bear and Housen, Volume 1, page 195. Of an alleged apostolic hymnody of a recent critic so competent as Edward Roos of Strasbourg has said that it, quote, cannot be proved from the doubtful traces which have been adduced as evidence therefore, end of quote. Quoted from History of the New Testament, Volume 1, page 162. There being no relics of an apostolic hymnody extent, then presump the presumption is strong that there never was such a hymnody. Had extra-psalmodic hymns and songs of inspired origin been current in the early church, they could not all have perished. Fifth, as Sheen states in the Encyclopedia Biblica, article on hymns, the language of Paul presupposes a stock of songs which were known by heart and easily rose to the lips. Is it supposable that within a generation after the death of Christ, a collection of apostolic odes coordinate with the Psalms had crystallized into shape, and that these were familiarly known in the churches of Asia Minor, which were less than ten years old? Reviewing the argument, surely it may be held as a moral certainty that in the infant church of the New Testament there was no creation of inspired hymns for social worship. Even though, however, the opposite was admitted, the fact must still be faced that such productions were short-lived and are lost beyond recall. The matter, therefore, would remain precisely the same as to us, for no human composures can replace what were God-breathed. The ground is now cleared for insisting that the praise songs of these twin passages are those of the Psalter alone. As a counterpart to the interpretations which have been negatived, it is susceptible of absolute demonstration that the three terms were applied to the Psalms of Scripture long before Paul wrote, and that this usage was universally prevalent in the Church of his day. For the proof of this, we rely chiefly upon the Septuagint. The Jews of the Dispersion, not only in Egypt, but in Western Asia and Europe, spoke Greek habitually. During the 3rd and 2nd centuries B.C., there was made in their interest the Greek version of the Old Testament styled the Septuagint, LXX, so-called from the legend that it was executed by 70 translators. Its use spread, so, spread rapidly, and at the dawn of the Christian era, era, all Hellenistic Jews read their Bible through this medium. Philo of Alexandria, the best representative of the Hellenist, depended wholly upon the Septuagint, and Josephus himself, a Palestinian Jew, cites it more than he does the Hebrew. Accordingly, the heralds of the gospel found this version ready to their hand, and it went with them wherever Greek was understood. Just as, it, as the New Testament was written in Greek for Greek-speaking peoples, so the Old Testament, the only scriptures of the early apostolic period, was circulated through the church in the Greek dress of the Septuagint. That the apostles were well acquainted with this translation and commonly used it is shown in that two-thirds of their Old Testament quotations are from its pages. Turning to the recipients of these letters, it is granted that the churches in Asia Minor were predominantly Gentile, and yet, as Ramsay has proved, in The Church in the Roman Empire and St. Paul the Traveler and the Roman Citizen, Jews were numerous in this region, particularly in the Greco-Asiatic cities, and the Book of Acts makes it plain that they and their proselytes were the nuclei of the churches there planted. See Acts 8, verse 14, 14, verse 1, 16, verse 1 and 3, and 19, verse 8 and 10. This alone guarantees that the Septuagint was in ordinary use in these communities, and even though a Jewish element is shut out from the reckoning, the Gentile Christians at Ephesus and Colossae and elsewhere could have read the scriptures in that version only, which was in general currency and which had received apostolic sanction. It follows that the Psalter songs, 
which, it is almost unanimously admitted, were an integral part of their worship, and which were chanted to their Greek music, must have been from the translation of the Seventy. Consulting this great version, the most cursory reader will find first that there is a steady recurrence of these three designations, psalms, hymns, and songs. In the, form, form, in the formal titles to the compositions of the Psalter. Second, that the terms hymns and songs with their related verbs occur again and again in the text or body of the Psalms. And third, that the same terms are employed frequently in the historical books, both canonical and apocryphal, with reference to the Psalter. Besides the caption of the entire Psalter, which is Psalms, it is well known that most of these inspired odes have headlines of their own. In 67 of these, the word psalm appears. In 6, the word hymn. And in 35, the word song, the same Greek words used in the passages before us. Still further, psalm and song are conjoined 12 times, and psalm and hymn twice. In the heading of the 76th psalm, all three turns stand side by side, just as here, and the heading of the 65th psalm contains psalm and song, while in the first verse the composition is spoken of as a hymn. It is noteworthy also in these compound inscriptions that our terms interchange easily, and that hymn is written repeatedly in the plural, suggesting that in the estimation of the seventy it was applicable to all the poems of the Psalter. There are such various phrasings as a psalm of a song, a song of a psalm, a psalm a song, in psalms a song, in hymns a psalm, in hymns a psalm a song. Turning from the titles of the Greek Psalter, the terms hymn and song with their cognate verbs and substantives are interspersed freely through the text as well as its odes being descriptive of these compositions. See Psalm 9, verse 16, Psalm 22, verse 22, Psalm 40, verse 3, Psalm 65, verse 1, Psalm 69, verse 30, Psalm 71, verse 6 and 8, as well as Psalm 72, verse 20, as well, Psalm 92, verse 1 to 3, Psalm 100, verse 4, Psalm 118, verse 14, Psalm 119, verse 171, Psalm 137, verse 3 and 4, Psalm 144, verse 9, and Psalm 148, verse 14. Three citations out of 16 will suffice. The 40th Psalm, verse 3, runs, he put, a new, he put into my mouth a new lay, a hymn, Greek word, to our God. At the close of the 72nd Psalm, there is the line, The hymns, Greek word, of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This colophon may apply to the entire preceding collection, Psalms 1 and 72 inclusive, as Perone contends or it may have been attached to some group of Davidic psalms incorporated in the Psalter. In either case, it shows that the LXX translators comprehended psalms indiscriminately and collectively under the name hymns, Greek word. Again, in Psalm 137, verse 3, we read, There they who took us captive demanded of us words of songs, Greek word, and they who led us away said, Chant us a hymn, Greek word, out of the songs, Greek word, of Zion. Here the word songs, Greek word, covers all the psalms, and a hymn may be selected at random from these songs. When we pass from the psalms themselves to the historical books of the Septuagint, the terminology is identical. In Second Samuel, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, and Nehemiah, there are 16 instances of this, and in them the psalms as a plurality are called hymns, Greek word, or songs, Greek word, indifferently, and the singing of them is called hymning, Greek word, Greek word, Greek word. See 2 Samuel 6 verse 5, 
22, verse 1 and 2, 1 Chronicles 15, verse 22, 16, verse 42, 25, verse 6, 2 Chronicles 5, verse 13, 7, verse 6, 23, verse 13 and 18, 29, verse 30, 34, verse 12, Nehemiah 12, verse 24, 27, 36, and 46. In the apocryphal books of the Septuagint, likewise, sometimes considered an appendage to the Old Testament, sometimes a part of it, the same sustained usage catches the eye at least ten times, as will be seen by examining the wisdom of Jesus, the son of Sirach, or Ecclesiasticus, and the first and second book of the Maccabees. See Ecclesiasticus 47 verse 8, 51 verse 2, First Maccabees 4 verse 24, 33 and 54, First Maccabees 13 verse 51, Second Maccabees 1 verse 30, also 10 verse 7 and 38, and 12 verse 37. This then is the multiplied and cumulative witness of the Septuagint, Paul's Bible, and the Bible of the Asia Minor churches. Does it not point indubitably to the con- conclusion? that the Apostle intends nothing but the Greek Psalter when he employs the three denominations it had worn so long and which would recur readily to every mind? And here it is worthwhile to observe again his injunction. He does not tell those who address to make psalms, hymns, and songs, but to use such as they had and with which they are assumed to be conversant. And what were these? What in the circumstances could they have been in the thought of either the writer or the readers, but that divine system of lyrics known by these three ancient titles and which, so far as history reveals, was the only compilation of sacred songs known by any name. Let it be supposed that the book of Psalms alone had been used in the Christian church up to the present, that it had taken root in the affections of the people, and that in the authorized version of the Bible and the popular praise manuals, its 150 odes were styled psalms, hymns, and songs. Suppose next that a pastoral letter was dispatched to our congregations, advising the people to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly, in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What would be understood by the exhortation? The question answers itself. But these were precisely the conditions among the churches of Asia Minor. According to the principles of historical criticism, therefore, the evidence is ample and decisive that these passages reproduce the technical psalter designations of the Septuagint. As against successful dissent, notice that the authorities are practically unanimous that in the first of the three words, the psalter is referred to either exclusively or chiefly. Footnote so Dr. Alexander, Bishop of Derry, Bloomfield, Edie, Hodge, Lathrop, Lightfoot, McLaren, Oler, Olhausen, Roos, Salmon, Steer, Tholuck, and most commentators. End of footnote. Roos and others counted inconceivable that the word psalm, Greek word, should have a wider sense anywhere in the New Testament. Footnote. At 1 Corinthians 14 verse 26, some find in Greek word a reference to an improvised effusion of an inspired character, but writers like Binney, Trench, and Roos oppose this and make the usage of the word absolute. The latter position is maintained also in the Encyclopedia Britannica article on hymns and by Graham in his commentary on Ephesians. End of quote. It being settled then that the Apostle in penning the word psalm had definitely before him the Psalter in its Greek address, how is it possible to deny fairly that the terms which he conjoins with psalms are limited to that customary application of them to the Psalter which is testified to by the Septuagint? In such a grouping coordinated with psalms and without any new use of them being hinted, how could they have been diverted from their stereotyped meaning? Our position, already well fortified, receives striking confirmation outside the Alexandrian version. Philo, the learned Jewish philosopher, writing during our Lord's life and immediately after, he died in A.D. 40, 
never once uses the word psalm, Greek word, or its compounds in connection with his many quotations from the Psalter, but always him, Greek word, or one of its compounds. This leads Sheen to surmise that Alexandria had a special edition of the Greek Psalter with him, Greek word, as its running title. Footnote, Bampton, Lectures for 1889, page 12. End of footnote. While Edwin Hatch accounts for Philo's practice on the theory that hymns, Greek word, was the older designation of the Psalms. Footnote, Essays in Biblical Greek, page 174. End of footnote. Flavius Josephus, the celebrated historian who represents Jewish Hellenistic literature in the generation which followed Philo, tells how David composed songs, Greek word, and hymns, Greek word, and alludes repeatedly to the Psalms as hymns. Footnote, Antiquities of the Jews, Book 6, I'm sorry, Book 7, Chapter 12, Section 3, also Book 11, Chapter 3, Section 8, Chapter 4, Section 2, and Chapter 9, Section 6. End of footnote. The New Testament itself, elsewhere than in these passages in Ephesians and Colossians, agrees unmistakably in the same witness. In Matthew 26, verse 30, and Mark 14, verse 26, it is recorded that after the institution of the supper, our Lord and his apostles hymned, or sung in hymn, Greek word. All grant that what Jesus is thus described as singing on that sad night was the second part of the Passover Hallel, Psalms 115 and 118 inclusive. And yet the evangelists call this the singing of hymns. Footnote, they use the particle of Greek word, a verb correlative with Greek word. End of footnote. Let it be noted that these Gospels echo the established habit of the Church at the time when they were written, and that they and our two epistles belong to the same decade. Footnote. The coincidence of the two Gospels in the use of Greek word proves this. End of footnote. And now, massing what has been gleaned from the Septuagint, from the eminent Hellenistic authors named, and from the New Testament itself, it is indisputable that during apostolic days, in both Jewish and Christian circles, it was the custom to refer to the lyrics of the Psalter as psalms, hymns, or songs indifferently. So fixed, indeed, was this, that it persisted in the early Greek fathers and in the 2nd second century Greek versions of the Old Testament, that of Aquila, that of the Theodosian, and that of Symmachus. According to the interpretation of these passages here upheld, the different terms are taken as synonyms. This is certainly true in the Septuagint, where psalm, hymn, and song interchange promiscuously, where, in fact, the same Hebrew noun is translated hymn and psalm. Footnote. The word neganoth is rendered hymns in the inscription of Psalms 6, 54, 55, 61, 67, and 76, while in the inscription of Psalm 4 it is rendered Psalms. End of footnote. And where, in the plural, as here, each word is an appellation for the whole Psalter. Even some who do not find in these New Testament terms an exclusive reference to the Psalter appreciate that they are synonymous, though the admission is damaging because of the generally accepted signification of Psalm. Greek word. Footnote. Lightfoot on Colossians 3.16 says, quote, It is quite possible for the same song to be at once Greek word, Greek word, and Greek word. Morello Cohn says that these quote, three terms are essentially synonymous and the slight shades of meaning between them are not easily definable. End of quote. End of footnote. That the poems of the Psalter answer in reality to each one of these terms is patent. As Dr. J. Addison Alexander said of them, quote, They are all not only poetical, but lyrical, that is, songs, poems intended to be sung. End of quote. Footnote, Introduction to Commentary on Psalms. End of footnote. They are psalms also, for their original rendition was with instrumental accompaniment. Footnote, 
Greek word is from Greek word to play on a stringed instrument. End of footnote. And they are hymns in that they are intrinsically religious, embodying adoration, thanksgiving, confession, and supplication to God. So pronounced is their hymnic character that they have received the designations of hymns continuously from the first. The old Hebrew name of the Psalter, that of the Rabbins, and subsequently that of the Talmud, was Sefer Tehillim. Footnote. From Tehillah, meaning praise, song of praise. End of footnote. Book of Praises, or, as it might be paraphrased, hymn book. Then comes the early Greek usage, biblical and extra-biblical, already rehearsed. Succeeding centuries maintain the practice as is seen in the apostolical constitutions and the works of such fathers as Justin Martyr, Hippolytus, Eusebius, Hilary, Athanasius, Jerome, Augustine, and Cassian. Testimonies from the Middle Ages might be multiplied at great length, but Bede, the Venerable, gives their gist when he speaks of the whole Psalter as called, quote, Liber Hymnorum, end of quote, by universal consent. Thereafter, through the Reformation period and down to modern times, the Psalms are spoken of incessantly as hymns. And today, in spite of the popular cleavage between hymns and psalms, all our dictionaries, such as Webster, the Century, and the Standard, identify the Psalms as hymns. Scholarly writers describe the Psalter as a hymnal, the hymn book of the Second Temple, or the hymn book of the Reformed Churches, and Psalms are stitched into collections of hymn composition and labeled hymns with the rest. Footnote Scholarly writers, such as Ewald, Stanley, and Robertson Smith, are here referred to. End of footnote. Against the ascribing of these three terms to the Psalter, it is urged that songs, Greek word, has an attributive in the word spiritual, Greek word, which is novel, and which forbids dependence on the Septuagint in the exegesis of these passages. It is not psalms, hymns, and songs, we are told, but psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The objection is plausible, but it shrinks to the vanishing point and becomes a verbal quibble when the context in Ephesians is noted. The Greeks, the Asiatic Greeks particularly, were devoted to music. Song and jest, stimulated by the wine cup, were the entertainment of the social hour, and often these were coarse and wanton. Their very religious festivals included the orgies of Bacchus and Venus, where vile, phallic songs were a feature. In contrast with this wicked revelry, Paul tells his readers to enliven their gatherings with the joy which the Spirit of God imparts and to express themselves in songs which he has inspired. The answer, therefore, to the objection raised is that while the terms psalms and hymns were marked out as, were marked out as consecrated, the terms songs had become peculiarly besmirched in heathen parlance and the apostle adds the word spiritual to differentiate Christian song from all else and brand the opposite which he has in mind as earthly, sensual, and devilish. Footnote. Chrysostom opposes to this Greek word satanic songs. End of footnote. With the occasion of the word spiritual cleared up, it is submitted that the propriety of its application to the Psalms cannot be gainsaid, that they are the fruit of the inspiration of God hailing from men energized by the, energized by the Holy Spirit, is reiterated in Scripture. Footnote, 2 Samuel 23, verse 2, Matthew 22, verse 43, Mark 12, 36, Acts 1, 16, Acts 4, 25, Hebrews 4, verse 7, Hebrews 5, verse 5 and 6. End of footnote. And is evinced in the treatment accorded them by our Lord and his apostles. In truth, their inspiration is perceptible, tangible. The book carries on its front the divine image and superscription, and it is not exaggeration to say that it is the most conspicuous product of the Spirit in the bounds of the canon. Here we abandon the defensive and contend that this praise volume is absolutely unique, in that of its lyrics alone can it be predicated that they are pneumatic or spiritual songs. 
Among existing hymnals there is not another in all the world which contains such songs except as they have borrowed from the Psalter. Again it has been asked, Is not this triple enumeration redundant if the Psalter is made the only reference in these three terms? Why such multiplication of titles? In reply, note, number one, if there is any difficulty here, it is reduced but little by those who oppose us in the interpretation of these passages. They do not find three kinds of praise as consistently they should do, but they stop with a twofold classification, for notwithstanding all attempts there has been failure in distinguishing hymns and spiritual songs. They are able to isolate the psalms by themselves, but the hymns and spiritual songs remain fused and confused. As between unifying the reference of two terms and that of three, the difference is not great. If there is tautology in the one case, there is also in the other. Secondly, it is common in scripture to call the same thing by different names in close connection, this in order to give a fuller and more emphatic description of it by specifying its various aspects. Paul himself resorts frequently to such accumulations. Footnote See Exodus 34, verse 7, Leviticus 16, verse 21, 1 Kings 6, verse 12, 1 Chronicles 39, 29, verse 19, Psalm 19, verse 7 and 8, Psalm 119, throughout, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, Colossians 1, verse 9, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, and Hebrews 2 verse 4 end of footnote and thirdly as a matter of fact Paul's Psalter gave the Psalms these very titles sometimes in combinations and twice in the triple combination of these verses footnote Psalms 65 and 76 already noticed the only other real titles in the Greek Psalter are Greek word Hallelujah and Greek word Prayer the first is an interjection or exclamation and is found 18 times. Psalm 105, Psalm 106, 107, 111, 112, 113, 114, 116, 117, 118, 119, 135, 136, 144, I'm sorry, 146, 147, 148, 149, 150. The second is attached to five psalms. Psalm 17, Psalm 86, Psalm 90, Psalm 102, Psalm 142. End of footnote. Number four. These precepts in Ephesians and Colossians have a lively and urgent context, and it is keeping with this to suppose that their heaping of terms is, as Dr. S. D. S. Salmon says, with a view to rhetorical force. Another objection advanced against our interpretation is that, had the Book of Psalms been meant exclusively, the definite article would have been prefixed to the three words. This article argument is quickly met. First, in the Greek Psalter itself, the article is not used in connection with any one of these three titles, not even with the prefatory Greek word. Secondly, Paul may have meant the words to be taken qualitatively. This is favored in Ephesians, where there is a tacit contrast with Bacchanalian songs. Thirdly, in New Testament Greek, as well as in classical, the article is often omitted before appellatives which denote a well-known object. Footnote. See Weiner's New Testament Grammar, 7th edition, section 19. End of footnote. And it has been demonstrated already that these three titles were attached to a historical system of praise well known to the apostles and the Asiatic churches. Our exegesis of these passages now nears completion but it must still be verified as satisfying the demands of the double context. Consider first the relation in the Colossian passage between the indwelling of the word of Christ and the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Whether such singing is to be reckoned as the mode of imparting the word of Christ 
whereas the outcome of its indwelling is immaterial at the present. For in any event, the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs spoken of must be in unison with the word of Christ and contain it. As to the phrase the word of Christ occurring here only, a documentary or literary conception of it is improbable. Let it be taken generally as the teaching of Christ, the body of truth by which men are made wise unto salvation and furnished completely unto every good work. And now we ask, does not the Psalter gleam and glow with the saving doctrines of Christianity? Does it not beyond the four Gospels reveal the mind which was in Christ Jesus? Were the rest of the Bible destroyed, would it not preserve an exposition of the way of life sufficiently clear to save a fallen race? Is it not a true instinct which has led publishers to bind up the Psalter with the New Testament as being manifestly of kindred nature? It was Augustine, the illustrious Latin father, who said that, quote, the voice of Christ and his church was well nigh the only voice to be heard in the Psalms. End of quote. Bengal spoke of the Psalter as, quote, a remarkable portion of the scriptures in which the subject of Christ and his kingdom is most copiously discussed. End of quote. More recently, Franz de Liszt, the great German exegete and Hebraist, wrote, quote, There is no essential New Testament truth not contained in the Psalms. End of quote. These testimonies will stand. Christ faced himself in the Psalter, nor did he see in a mirror darkly, and his apostles, judging by the scores of their quotations, found in its odes the messianic and evangelical element in abounding measure. The Psalter reference in these three terms conforms, therefore, to the requirements of the context so far as concerns the phrase, the word of Christ. Can the same be said of any rival reference? Can any pleader for uninspired hymns be maintained that in it there is a comprehensive presentation of the word of Christ equal to that in the book of Psalms? It was none less than Dr. James H. Brooks of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America who said a few years ago, quote, It is difficult in any ordinary hymn book to find a dozen hymns that are in accord with the word of Christ. End of quote. This was found in the magazine entitled Truth. Once more, by these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the Colossian Christians are told to teach and admonish one another. But since it is the, uni- is the u- usual manner of the Apostle to refer his readers to Scripture for instruction and admonition, and since for these ends he draws heavily upon the psalms in his epistles, the divine praise book is suggested at once as his only thought. Certainly it is hymns of a definitely dogmatic instructional type which are presupposed. And it is just here in preceptive power and in doctrinal substance that the Psalter hymns tower splendidly above all others. The Psalter may be religion and not theology as as it is sometimes put, but nevertheless it has a thoroughly didactic character that is unapproached and unapproachable by lyrics uninspired. Thirdly, in Ephesians, the speaking one to another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is a sequel of being filled with the Spirit. Instead of the excitement of strong drink, be God-intoxicated through the infilling of the Spirit and give vent to your joyous emotions in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So runs the exhortation. Here again, how exactly the Bible songs correspond to such a connection. Receive the fullness of the Spirit and then pour out your souls in the hymns of the Psalter, indicted as they all are by the Spirit and redolent of his holy inspiration. The Numa and his own pneumatic psalm, what God hath joined together in this passage, let not man put asunder. The last clause in each passage is worthy of a moment's notice. In Colossians, according to the revised text, the singing was to be unto God, as the object and auditor of praise, not to Christ distinctively and exclusively. This, as all are aware, is emphatically true of the Psalms, which, though full of Christ, and specializing him over and over again, do not forget his organic unity with God in the essence of the divine being. The parallel in Ephesians reads, To the Lord. Yet there too, as verse 20 shows, 
Christ is looked upon as a mediator through whom the sacrifice of praise is offered to him who is the ultimate source of blessing, God, even the Father. Summarizing the results of our exegesis, it has been determined, first, that the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs of these passages included nothing that was uninspired, nor any compositions newly inspired in the apostolic age. Secondly, that they are all embraced in the book of Psalms, this finding being based upon the impregnable testimony of the Greek Bible and Psalter used by Paul and the Pauline churches, upon the usage of contemporary Hellenistic writers, upon the witness of the Gospels according to Matthew and Mark, upon the conformity of the Psalter to this threefold characterization, and upon the fact that an exclusive reference to the Psalms satisfies every postulate of the context. The alternative theory, though as we believe purely conjectural and arbitrary, has not been brushed aside in any cavalier style, for no statement in the process of exposition has been an overstatement, but has been attested substantially. If the exegesis now submitted be sound, it follows that the apostolic church employed the psalms alone in the ordinance of worship, and that to restrict ourselves to them in this sacred exercise is a New Testament commandment. Under the opposite interpretation, let it be noticed first that the psalms still have the primacy taking precedence of hymns and spiritual songs, and that most hymn-singing churches ignore this by confining themselves to human hymnology. Second, that the singing of uninspired hymns in worship is not barely permitted, but is explicitly prescribed, and is therefore binding, a contention which few would care to defend. End note. Among the authorities upholding the foregoing interpretation of these passages may be mentioned the following. Clement, the celebrated Greek father who presided over the catechal school at Alexandria. Pedagogos, Lib. 3, Cap. 4. Jerome, the most learned of the early fathers of the Latin Church, Commentary on Ephesians. Biza, the friend and ablest coadjutor of Calvin, Commentary on Colossians. John Owen, the prince of English divines in the 17th century. Preface to a metrical edition of the Psalms published in 1673 for use among the independents and dissenters of England. Jean Daly, died in 1670, a celebrated French Protestant minister in his exposition of Colossians. Cotton Mather, who died in 1728, the well-known New New England author. Thomas Ridgely, a standard English writer on theology, in his Body of Divinity, edition of 1819, volume 4, page 134. Jonathan Edwards, who died in 1758, the noted American divine and metaphysician, in his History of Redemption, Period 1, Part 5. John Gill, a learned Orientalist and Baptist theologian of the 18th century, in his Body of Divinity and Commentary on Ephesians. John Brown of Haddington, Scotland, Professor of Divinity in the Associate Synod of Scotland, died 1787, in the Dictionary of the Bible. William Romaine, an eminent author of the 18th century in the Church of England, Walter F. Hook, who died in 1875, an Anglican dean and ecclesiastical historian, Church Dictionary, the Encyclopedia Britannica article on hymns by the Right Honourable the Earl of Selborne, William Binney of Scotland, in The Psalms, Their History, Teachings and Use, London, 1877. H. C. B. Baisley of Oxford, England, who died in 1883, biography. E. L. Hicks, Honorable Canon of Worcester, Church of England, biography of Henry Baisley. Edward Roos of Strasbourg, the great Alsatian Protestant theologian, died in 1891, History of the New Testament. Taylor Lewis, for many years Professor of Greek Language and Literature in Union College, Shinnektaddy, New York, the Bible Psalmody. Philip Schaff of Union Theological Seminary, New York City, the distinguished church historian, died 1893. In History of the Christian Church, Volume 1, page 463. 
and the late John A. Brodus of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Commentary on Matthew. This ends a special exegesis of Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5 verse 19 by Professor John McNaher. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.